Hello, and welcome to the Andwise Podcast. We are delighted to have you here spending some time with us. Andwise is a technology platform that aims to empower medical students, trainees, and early career physicians navigate the complex financial journey that we all find ourselves on as we aim to help others. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Welcome to another episode of the Andwise podcast. We're so lucky today to be joined by Dr. Kareem Elsharkawi. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He's one of our medical advisory board members. Kareem, thank you so much for making time. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for having me. You have an amazing story because I'm so inspired by doctors that train in other countries and then come here and have to retrain essentially to be allowed to practice in their chosen field. And not only did you do that, but you did it in one of the most competitive specialties there is to match into orthopedics. I always like to let the guests introduce themselves because you can do much more justice to your own history than I can. So please go go ahead and tell some of the uh, medical students, residents, uh, and wise community members all about yourself. Thanks, Varun. And again, thanks for having me. And I appreciate the kind words. I did my medical school in Cairo, Egypt. I followed with a residency in orthopedics after that, and I stayed on as an assistant lecturer at the University of Cairo. I was doing some spine surgery at the time. During that time, I was always interested in coming to the U.S., and I was between the U.S. or the U.K. I was trying to contact folks in in both places. I had an opportunity to go to the Cleveland Clinic, and it started with an observership. It wasn't planned. My plan all along was to do some spine surgery, but this was an observership at the Cleveland Clinic with one of the attendings there who's a joint replacement surgeon. A friend of mine introduced me to the opportunity. He's actually in radiology. It's funny how things work and the stuff that you plan for and life takes you in a different direction. So my friend called me and he said, I know somebody and if you're interested, you can go and just observe. And it was a informal, laid-back opportunity. And I said, yes, sure. I went over there. I observed for one month. I really liked it. I was very impressed that the Cleveland Clinic, it was overwhelming. And I had a good rapport with the attending that I observed with. He became my mentor moving forward throughout the years. And I owe him a lot of gratitude. I would say he's the reason why I'm here. Anyways, I talked to him and he's a straightforward guy. And he said, so what do you want? I can possibly offer you a fellowship. I said, no, I would like to stay and I would like to be just like everybody else. And I'm more interested in doing a residency. It's hard to get into orthopedics. I was told that my chances were low and maybe I can try, but the only path would be to come and do some research. But even with that, my chances would be about 30%. I agreed. I went back to uh, Egypt and we stayed in contact. I was pretty persistent. Eventually, I was offered a research fellowship. I went over there. There were no guarantees. And during that time, I started getting to know everyone and rotating a little bit and talking to some of the attendings and attending some of the conferences with the residents. I published and then I applied. Uh, I guess the stars were lined up and I had a good relationship with the folks over there and I matched. But I can tell you that it wasn't a surprise. I applied to multiple programs. And I got one interview at the Cleveland Clinic, and this is where I matched. Yeah, that's really impressive. It's so hard to match into orthopedics. Even U.S. graduates are doing it from abroad. I know there's so many obstacles in your way 
from a practical standpoint, you had already done residency in Egypt. So just even that psychological having to go through another five years of residency, it sounds like you were very resolute and keen to do that. It's not an easy another five or six years to get through plus fellowship, right? No, it wasn't. I was resolute. You're correct. I was trying to think long-term. A year goes by quickly. I'm going to do a fellowship and then leave. My plan was I wanted to stay. I wanted to be like everybody else. But no, the decision wasn't easy. Even when I was interviewing, I was asked that question is that how I'm going to function and act. I was asked, are you going to act like an intern or you're going to act like an attending or a chief. This was important also because I wanted to show that I'm here to learn. That was the whole point, even though I did a residency before, but there were other things that I wasn't exposed to. I wanted to learn from the beginning like everyone else. I put my head down and I went for it. That's awesome. Congratulations. At that time, were you single? Did you have spouse? What was your like family situation when you came to the U.S.? I, I had my wife with me. And we were married for about a year and a half. Yeah. So we, we actually spend most of our married life here in the U.S. than in Egypt. She was extremely supportive. Our family was supportive. She knew that this was something on my mind beforehand because as we're taking all kinds of tests, I was taking my USMLEs and I got an MRCS because I was thinking about maybe going to the U.K., I was studying all the time and she has witnessed it. When the time came, I, I think she was prepared, but it definitely wasn't easy. It also takes a certain type of personality to be okay with that and to move and leave everything behind. That was a, a huge help and, and, and support from that aspect. Yeah. And I can't imagine also when you're a medical student going to residency, you know, you know that you're not going to make money for a long time, but going from being an attending going back to being an intern. Most doctors don't go into medicine with money calculations in mind, but it's still a big shock to the system, I'm sure, going from attending back to intern, right? And it, living in a foreign country with expenses and all that jazz. I was thinking back now. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment. We had one car that had, I can't remember, 150,000 miles on it. She would have to drive me and then come back and use the car and but we made it through. It wasn't easy. Financially, it wasn't easy. I think that can be probably a, a segue to further discussions is that being frugal overall, even not living above your means, can really serve you throughout. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. So many immigrants share the same stories of having to start from scratch. You're in a completely different ballgame, having one of the most competitive and long residencies and having to do that as a newly married couple. I think it's very difficult being a new immigrant, already having one career established. My parents migrated from India to Australia after they got married. They're not in healthcare or medicine. And then they moved to the United States after I finished high school. And I still remember because I was 17 when we came here. Even though they lived in a Western country, they had no credit history. Oh, yeah. And even just buying simple things like a car, they couldn't do it without having someone co-sign their loans. And in their late 40s, it was very strange to have to restart all over again. A lot of that stuff happened with me because we were opening bank accounts. We're getting a driver's license, taking a test, getting Social Security. Yes, I, I couldn't get anything. And I really didn't even understand what the credit and the credit score you know, it took it took a few years until I just had a credit score. I was asking people to 
sign, have a co-signer so I can buy this, I can buy that. By also tapping into resources, like I, I had financial help from my family in Egypt. I had a car over there. I sold it. it it's a long journey. It, it's not easy. I was trying to just maybe keep my eye on the target and just get through the journey as best as I can. Yeah, that's um, amazing. It's so uh, inspiring. It's hard to sometimes remember back because it all seems like a blur and the, the training's not easy. But do you remember like between your residency and um, doing the fellowship afterwards, re reconstructive surgery, right? Yes. Um, and did you have time or the where or the knowledge to to hire anyone like a financial planner or an accountant or you didn't do that until after you became an attending or you've never done it you've self-managed everything yourself that's a great question i didn't the only thing that i did during residency is it, 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 like when you have people come and talk to you about financial stuff and disability and life insurance the good thing is that it was targeted towards residents it wasn't anything that's going to be costly down the line or making a huge financial mistake. I opened a Roth IRA when I was a resident, when my income can allow me to, uh, to contribute. I did that. I was, I was disciplined to save some of that money and then put it in the Roth IRA. When my kids were born, I started a life insurance, a disability insurance. That's the only thing that I have done until I would say probably six, seven years ago. Even when I wasn't attending, I wasn't doing any of that stuff. Then somebody introduced me to the whole financial independence movement. And it was literally the Choose Fi podcast I started listening to. And then I read J.L. Collins' book, the, what is it called? Simple Path to Wealth, right? Yes, The Simple Path to Wealth. And that really changed everything for me. I started saving more. I started putting money in low cost index funds, but not managed. I would just save the money and then put it away in low cost index funds, ma ma maxing out on the 401k. That grew over the years. Recently, I got like some financial advice, but also on the low cost side, but I'm mostly managing my own stuff. The one mistake that I did, and I know we just touched on it briefly before we started the recording and i'm sure a lot of people have done it but this is to the younger guys i got into a whole life insurance and i did it for a few years and then after a while i decided that the monthly cost was too much and i wanted to put it on hold and then i realized that you can't put it on hold you either continue to contribute or you stop i made the decision to stop but that has cost me over a hundred thousand dollars so it's a mistake. It's a mistake that I will never forget, but I'm happy that at least I got out of it at the right time. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. So many physicians have unfortunately found themselves in the same position. The first or second podcast episode we had with one of my neurologist colleagues from medical school, Ricky, that's his like sermon to give to everyone. Do not buy whole life because he paid like a premium for twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 for four years. And it takes courage to cut that off when you realize that, yeah, that's sunk cost. You course corrected and you made the tough decision. I think in the long term, it's only going to benefit you. Some people, unfortunately, aren't able to make that decision and they keep putting in premiums in there and they're making not as good returns, nowhere near as good as if they had just taken the loss and put that money in index funds going forward. But it's not Absolutely. easy. This was my idea. I was like, okay, I'm losing quite a bit now, but 
five, 10 years from now, I'm going to be losing more. Really, the impetus to do this is that the monthly premium became a little bit taxing. I was like, I can't keep on paying this every month. So I decided to get out of it, but I'll never forget it. Did you end up just getting yourself term life insurance if you're comfortable sharing? Or do you just save money aside, like as you're mentioning for your index? I got a term life insurance. I, I already had a term life insurance. And then I got this on top of it as an investment vehicle. When I decided I'm not going to do this anymore, I just kept the term, which I pay 60 bucks a month for it. And that's it. And the saying, buy term insurance and then save the rest or invest the rest. That's what I did. Yeah, that's great. I think that's the advice on all of these famous financial platforms and books. Get term because it's not an investment product. Unfortunately, insurance is for catastrophes and protecting your dependents. So switching topics a little bit, you've lived in a lot of places. You went to obviously Cleveland Clinic, then you did your fellowship in Boston. And after, after that, you've lived in New Jersey and now you're based in Texas, right? I'm in Texas right now. Yes. When you're looking for opportunities, have you done the mental math on cost of living and stuff like that? Or have you just gone to where your career aspirations have taken you? Because some people, depending on their life situation, spouses, children, stuff like that, they have the luxury to pick very low cost of living places. Some people, obviously, like I, I live in a very high cost of living area, South Jersey, but my whole family lives here, extended family. So we we don't want to leave and we can't leave. So yeah. have you ever thought about that or... The good thing, good and bad, unfortunately, we don't have family in the U.S., so it made it more flexible for us to go where we where we want to go. The way things happen, obviously, at the beginning is that you're not thinking about it too much. You're just happy to get a job out of training and getting a paycheck, getting an opportunity. And with the flexibility of not being tied to a certain geographic area, We were not thinking that much about this at the beginning with time and experience and every few years things change and then you start thinking differently and you start thinking about financial stuff. I would say at the beginning, no, it was more going towards where the opportunity was. But then as I moved along, it was a combination of, yes, the opportunity, cost of living, all of those financial implications. Texas doesn't have state income tax. These are some of the things that you think about as you move forward and as you make some mistakes along the line that you just learn from them. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to ask you, obviously now it sounds like you're doing low cost index funds. It sounds like you're doing most of it yourself as a published author and an orthopedic surgeon, doctors in general, you must get like approached for all sorts of investment opportunities, right? Whether it's like medical devices, startups, something like that. Maybe I'm projecting because this happens to me all the time on LinkedIn yeah. or cold emails or have uh, you had yeah. a lot of that stuff outreach to you? And how do you evaluate those kind of opportunities outside of doing conservative stuff like index fund investing? Yes, absolutely. I've, I've had quite a bit of those. The way I approached it is I'm putting the bulk of my stuff in the low cost index funds. I'm not thinking about it. I'm not going in and out. The saying is it's time in the market, not timing the market. You, you can never time the market. You listen to some of the smart, smartest people, even Warren Buffett, he talks about 
putting money in low-cost index funds. You can't really predict what's going to happen. I, I make it a habit that, like they say, once you get paid, you pay yourself first. And paying myself is, you know, saving some of the money, putting some of that money in college fund for my kids or low-cost index funds. Then the rest is what I'm going to use for my expenses, not the other way around. That is more than 90% of what I'm doing. I talked to some people, some friends and people in finance and banking, and even at the time of cryptocurrency, I'm not giving any financial advice or anything to anyone. But when I talked to them and things were moving really in the right direction at the time, and they, they were saying mostly these things, if we're going to do it, we're going to do probably one to 2% no more. Having the mindset of you have to be mentally prepared that you can lose all of it. And it's a risk and it's a gamble. I would say that I approach all of these things this way, is that knowing that the bulk of my stuff is fairly conservative. If I want to dabble with some of these things, I will. It's a pretty low amount, but mentally I'm prepared that I can lose this money. Yeah. And then just to clarify, were you talking about like one to 2% of like your take-home pay or like your net worth? Your net worth. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 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 You're absolutely right. There, there's so many shiny objects around and just because someone has had incredible success with it, depending on when you jump into this, you really can lose it all. I talk about one of my college friends, he turned $80,000 of crypto investing into $900,000 and one year he's telling me this story. And, and one year I used my hospitalist bonus to invest thinking like, oh, I'll just buy and hold. What's the worst that's going to happen? The worst that's going to happen is Bitcoin went from 50,000 to 10,000. Yeah. And, and as a physician, it takes a long time to save money. So okay. you're, you're right. You really have to be comfortable of just it, it being gone. You can't risk money that you're keeping for your day-to-day and expenses and certainly for your retirement, things like that, your children's education. Otherwise, that's just big tragedy. Absolutely. Yes. I would say most of that stuff to be in those types of funds and your 401 and all of that, depending on the opportunity, some of those shiny objects. Yes, there's always an opportunity, but knowing that you don't need this money right now. And if you lose it all, it's not going to break you. Yeah. Uh, there we're coming up on time but just a couple of other quick questions for you again none none of this is advice for anyone we're just talking amongst colleagues there seems to be online now at least based in my circle i see a lot of physicians like selling like courses and coaching services for like real estate have you ever invested in real estate or is that like an asset class that you think like aside from index funds and stuff that it seems to be very popular with physicians i have not but you get those emails and those invitations and dinner invitations by some companies and you don't know who they are. So I was never really interested in that. But I, I would say that recently on LinkedIn, there is real estate investment done by some physicians, or at least one of, one of them is a physician and an esteemed academic physician. And they had some webinars. I've contacted them. I, I listened to some of their material. It piqued my interest because they're physician, just like we are. It makes the conversation probably easier. I don't feel that's somebody trying to sell me something or some snake oil, but I haven't really got into it. I wanted to learn about it more and hopefully they will have more 
educational materials and webinars and things like that, I would be interested in maybe getting some of that stuff if I understand more about it. Yeah, I'm with you as well. I've been looking at a lot of physician real estate <clears throat> syndicators. They're people that like establish a fund and get a whole group of investors together and try to buy a big building that we would not be able to buy as individuals. It's interesting to see many of them seem to have had like tremendous success. But again, in today's date, the interest rates have just tripled basically in the span of a year. I think that's really going to change the math on a lot of these investments, especially if they don't have a fixed rate for their mortgages, for their commercial loans. Like you said, like educating yourself, there's just so many terms. How do you get your money back? There's all these terms that we've, we're not trained on. There's these splits between the limited partners, which are us, people just writing checks, and the general partners. Then there are like waterfalls, like who gets paid first? And then it's like quite unlike anything else that you invest in, like in stocks or bonds. Uh, it's quite complicated. And I think what drew me towards the low-cost index funds is that all of that financial stuff is pretty scary at the beginning and people throw all kinds of terms at you. What, once I understood this and it was simple, I was like, okay, I'm not trading. I'm just putting my money in an index fund that has literally all of the companies in the United States. And I don't have to do anything else about it. It takes some of that pressure off. Also as positions, you like to know, you like to understand, and then you get into an area that you have no idea about, especially when it comes to money, the mistakes there can be pretty expensive. Yeah, especially in real estate, like your money's locked up for quite some time in the stock market and bonds. You can essentially, you can sell it almost immediately. In these syndications, your money's probably tied up from anywhere from three to seven years. So there's no liquidity for the most part. Yeah. We're, we're coming up on time, but thank you so much for, I know you had a full day of clinic. You made time for you. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that we haven't touched upon for the next generation of docs that might be behind you in a career or life? The one thing, and I think we touched briefly on it. The one thing that I would say is living b below your means. And that doesn't mean to suffer or struggle. We go from residency to an attending job and you get a much bigger check than you got in training. But be careful. You can still be frugal and live in a nice place and drive a decent car and go for vacations. But the mistake that most people make is that they go all out and they buy the big house that they can't afford otherwise. You know, you have those golden handcuffs and you're on that hamster wheel just trying to keep up just to sustain that lifestyle that you created for yourself. That's the one thing that I would say. And the people talk about the saving and the investing and you need to earn more. But what people don't talk about is that it's relative. It's all math. If you're not even earning more, but you're spending less, you're still going to be in a good position. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You can certainly outspend any level of in income. Like these professional athletes and celebrities just wind up broke despite yeah. tens of millions of dollars. Yeah, that's a great point. Kareem, thank you so much again. Really appreciate your time and get home safe. Okay. Thanks for staying on to chat with us. Thanks, Varun. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.